Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of The Candace Owens Show. You get up really early, right? Uh, not that early. I mean, I get up at, at 4.30 in the morning. Not that early. Anybody hear that? He just said not that early, 4.30 in the morning. Completely crazy. Completely crazy. All right. <laughs> 4.30 in the morning is early by everybody's standards who has not been in the military. I'll tell you that, yeah. right? So yeah. 4.30 in the morning is an incredible time to get to get up. It's, it's an early time to get up. And I'm going to tell you what's interesting about that. I read an article about the habits. Um, they, they basically interviewed the most successful people in the world, like a bunch of billionaires, maybe like 10 billionaires, mm-hmm. and tried to, from just the way they live their lives, figure out what things that they all had in common. And um, the number one thing was waking up early. All of them got up at like 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, and, you know, I get pushed back on that all the time. Uh, people tell me it's unhealthy. People And there's books about how unhealthy it is. And, and, and you know, another thing is, and I, I put this out all the time, there's a single mom. There's single moms all over the place, single dads that are out there that are getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning so they can do their first shift at work in a diner somewhere as a waitress. When they get done with that, they're coming home, taking their kids to school. Then they're going off to their second job, doing whatever. And at night, they're doing their third job. So I have the luxury. I have the luxury of getting up early in the morning and I get up early in the morning and I work out and I have time for myself. That's a luxury for me. There's plenty of people that wake up earlier than that because they have to. And hopefully people that have that attitude over time, they'll be able to work themselves out of that position where they can actually get up because they want to. As a Canadian, the show is hilarious. Dude. Not just yours. Politics of America. <laughs> wow. You guys are dramatic. It is the longest running. I don't know if it's a sitcom or if it's... Some days. It, it, some days. Yeah, yeah. It's very Days of Our Lives, yeah. General Hospital. Almost a little Spanish soap opera, It is too. very soap opera-y. Like, why is she yelling for no reason? Yeah. yeah. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like I know. Yeah. I always say that. I'm like, what is the perception outside of the walls of America on what's going on here? Because like, you turn on the TV and it is just so theatrical. Like, you... There, I mean, uh-huh. you can't compete with our real life here. Like, no. There's no point in making soap operas. There's no point in making Broadways because, like, we are living it every single day here. Yeah, America the Musical. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And then the award shows and, like, like the other day with Michelle Williams that we were talking about, oh, I had an abortion, but now I have this piece of plastic. And that like- was like, I was just, I was wondering what planet we were on. So for people that are watching this, if you didn't watch the Golden Globes, I definitely didn't either. I just then went to go find clips because Ricky Gervais was just so amazing in Roasting the Room. But there is Michelle Williams, who is an actress who accepted um, an award for something. Um, And she goes up and she gets gets her little (laughs) statue for something. She gets her little statue and she gives this speech, um, which was pro-abortion. And she basically said, I would have never earned this inanimate object if I did not kill my baby and get an abortion years ago. And the room broke out into applause for this speech. And there were tears. And there were tears. crying. And I'm just like, y'all are crazy. (laughs) You're crazy people. You, like, the same people that are like, Tim Allen did cocaine in the 80s. Who didn't, from what I know? (laughs) And they hate him because of that. Or like, kill the babies. Yeah, it it was just weird. I was literally just like, this is this is the Twilight Zone. Like, this is this is why people think Hollywood is just like an infestation at this point. Because I was like, what a bizarre thing. Like, you murdered your child for an inanimate object, and we're supposed to be celebrating that and saying. And how about saying, you know what? 
if you got even if you got an abortion, you can still be pro-life. And that is a stance that I take because it's 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 less black and white. It's less you killed a baby, you're a murderer. That doesn't work. That's the same kind of stuff the left does on the other side. If I believe in my position and I do that it's it, that it's a life, how about saying to them, I know that you can it can be very confusing when you're young and you're told that your whole life's gonna get ruined if you get pregnant and it's just a clump of cells and you could make a decision, but you you can change your mind. There, there's so much there. So so first off, partly why the left is always screaming is they don't know really what their starting point is. So so people on the right generally if you're if you're an American, you believe in individual rights. You believe that every single person regardless of their skin color or sexuality or gender or blah 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 should have the same exact rights. On the left, you sort of have this idea that the state is kind of supposed to do a lot of stuff and then the disagreement is how much it should do. So the best way I could explain this is if you think back to the 2016 election, it was like if you picture, you know, Marco and Cruz and Trump all up there, they didn't have massive substantive issues. They had issues about personality, right? So Trump was, you're little Marco and you're Lion Ted and you're <laughs> this one and blah, blah, blah. But they didn't, but they sort of all believe in the Constitution. They all believe that America is fundamentally good and the rest of it. If you look at where the Democrats have been for the last couple of years, it's like they kind of don't really believe in the Constitution all the time. They kind of tell you that. They never say words like freedom and liberty. Imagine if someone walked on stage at one of those things and said the word freedom. People would be like, you're at the wrong event, buddy. Like, <laughs> well, what, what are you talking about here? Um, but I think that gets to why they're so hysterical all the time because – they have this idea that the state is supposed to do a lot and then the next guy is like, no, the state should do more. And then you're kind of like, oh, maybe it should. Otherwise, I'm a bad guy. So it's like when they say they're for $15 minimum wage and then Rashida Tlaib comes along, that's, you know, Bernie's been pushing 15 forever, which is a horrible idea on so many levels and, and antithetical to American ideas because why should the government be able to force a private company what to do and put that aside. But then Rashida comes along and she's like, no, it should be 20. And it's like, well, she's kind of right because you just made up a number. So let's, why not why make up she? another number? Right. And then, then somebody's going to come along and go, 50. Rashida, you're racist. It's 25. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, so they don't know what their fundamental principle is. And because of that, because of that, that's why they're crazy all the time. Mm. Because constantly you're looking around going, Who, who's going to outdo me on something? And I think that's a fundamental piece of why having a debate about abortion which I've tried to do a million times. Lila Rose, who you've had her on, mm -hmm. on this show, right? So she's been on my show. I think she's wonderful. Obviously, we have some disagreements on this stuff. I have put out there many times on Twitter, I would love to have a, a pro-choice advocate come on the show with Lila Rose. We've invited Alyssa Milano and, and the, the collection of, of usual suspects. Totally respectfully, we've reached out publicly and privately. Nobody nobody and there's a reason for it it's not just that dave rubin is mean or something like that or that lila's a liar or something like that these not true statements obviously it's that they don't want to actually debate these things in a calm way because they need the emotion to override the argument well, because they the second the voters figure out they can vote themselves money it's all over mm -hmm. and that's essentially I'm going to offer you free health care and free college tuition. And it's like, well, I'm going to give free college tuition, health care, and I'll eliminate any debt. Oh, okay. Maybe that guy now. And it's like that the experiment is over. And the politicians ha have figured out that it, it's like you got two kids in the house and I'm running on a platform of scrambled eggs and oatmeal in the morning and my wife's running on a platform of Reese's peanut butter cups 
and nobody needs to go to school on Mondays. And they go, well, we're voting for, we're voting for her. Mom. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going, but that's unhealthy. And in the big picture, it's not going to be good. You know, your dental hygiene is not going to be good. There's early onset diabetes. You're not going to be properly educated when you enter the workforce. And they're like, yeah, okay, we'll be enjoying our peanut butter cups right. over here. That, that's such a perfect analogy. And that's... That's what it is. And mm-hmm. the politicians have been like, well, let's just offer peanut butter cups. Mm-hmm. And that it literally reminds me of in elementary school. When we had um, we, we had to elect a president for our, our class or our grade. Um, and there were two people running against each other. And one of them just ran, you elect me. It was like a mock election. Oh, free. We're going to have free lunch and blah, blah, blah. Free this and free that. And they went and they got really glittery, nice posters. And that person won. Like yeah. no one cared. I mean, about the economics of it. He said it was going to be like we didn't actually get it. It was like a mock election, but the kid that won was the one that offered the most free stuff. So really, fundamentally, what you have on the left is people that have adopted um, an elementary, elementary fifth grade, um, you know, election style. You know, how am I going to get elected in a group full of people that don't that can't help themselves? A, um, don't want to help themselves. B, but love free stuff. Yeah, and that, it's, that tends it, to be it, the majority. It's a steady diet of free stuff mixed in with your victim, and I'm going to fix that. Right, so. and, and victim's easy, by the way. And, and you always wonder why do people love all of these different categories of how to be a victim because victimhood's easy. Life's tough, right? Saying, hey, you know what? Life t- life's really tough, and it's tough for everybody. It's not, it's not an easy thing to, to be a good human being, to be a productive human being every single day, day in and day out. Um, so it's much easier to offset all of your problems and to say, you know what? It's not my fault. If I fail here, forget getting back up, right? Forget getting back up and trying again. I'm going to say I failed because of this. That's an easy pass, right? To say, I'm actually, yeah, I know I haven't done anything in my life, but it's because of the white person, the tall person, the rich person, the whatever person. Hold on, that's all me. <laughs> Wait, did she, did she say ruggedly handsome or did I just hear you that? Just, let me ask you a question. Let's say the world um, moves as quickly technologically as it has been. So in the next 100 years, mm-hmm. you know, the world is is being largely driven by what's happening out in space. Is it fair to say that if we don't get in this, if if, if it is, if space does become dominated uh, by China, if they dominate space and they will, they dominate the world? Oh, yeah. I, there's no question there's about no it. There's no question. There's uh, no being a world power, but we're not playing in space. Right. And uh, the, the subtlety here is that we, we get trapped in the paradigms of the past. So right now, when people think about space and the way we've done space since 1960 is we just fall around the Earth, you know, and uh, you, you think of a satellite command. And mm-hmm. so it's just falling around the Earth, bringing GPS and timing and uh, weather satellites and, uh, and pictures from space so that you can see every po- part of planet Earth. Uh, That's all fine and good, but that's a paradigm we're stuck in. What China is looking to is the economy of space outside of that gravity wheel, outside of orbits, where you're maneuvering uh, between the Earth and the Moon and Mars. And you have uh, an infrastructure. It would be like us building the the Eisenhower interstate system in order to allow towns to thrive in little economies all over. Imagine our country without railroads or roads. Uh, Those railroads and roads uh, make us vibrant economically. China is building those roads and railroads into space. And and if we aren't there with them, they will benefit from the the resources uh, on the moon, on asteroids, and the sun as they build out capability to receive that sun energy and modify it into safe radio waves that can be absorbed into devices and power anything. In cislunar space, the cislunar space means between the Earth and the moon and beyond. So this is where they're going. And if we don't, uh, they will be able to do things. They will be able to weaponize 
information and energy uh, because of what they can do with a network in space. Uh, they will be able to dominate tr transportation because they will uh, have the transportation capability to get this infrastructure in space that can take anybody on planet Earth. You could get into a spacecraft. Elon Musk is building this right now in Brownsville, Texas. Get on a spacecraft and be in Singapore in 39 minutes. Walk around, go shopping, and be home for dinner. Um, so let me ask you a question. What is your perspective on some of the clean energy solutions? Uh, do you have any in mind? Uh, solar. Let's go solar first. And then we'll go wind. Um, and then we'll go hydro. Well, so like broadly speaking, what, what we should be in favor of is energy. Like we don't really care where it comes from. We, we, we want it to have a few characteristics though. We need it to be reliable. That's one really important thing. We need to have as much of it as we need on demand. And then we need it to be low cost on a large scale. Because if it's not low cost on a large scale, then people can't have it. And Part of the context is in the world today, 3 billion people lack reliable low cost energy. Just think about that. Like no, and a billion people lack electricity totally. So no refrigerator, no lights, no warming. I mean, the most they're getting is they're cooking their food and heating their homes with wood and animal dung. So we've got a world of 8 billion people and 3 billion are what I call unempowered, right? They don't have, they can't use machine power to improve their lives. And so when we're looking at sources of energy, the question isn't just, oh, can this technically produce energy at some price, at some point in some place? It's can it produce reliable, low-cost energy for billions of people? Can it be scaled? Yeah, yeah. can it be scaled? And can it be uh, reliable? And, and can it be versatile? Can it do all the things like flying planes and you know running trains and, and, and agriculture? I mean, Agriculture Day runs on oil and it runs on natural gas. So we have to first understand that fossil fuels have this amazing thing where they provide 24-7 energy for every need of billions of people. And so when you're looking at something like solar and wind, the question isn't like, oh, do I like the sun? It's has anyone figured out how to create a process by which we can turn sunlight into low-cost reliable energy? And the short answer for all of these is going to be no. So if you talk about, so, so I'm all in favor of people trying, but I need to recognize the reality about whether they have. And if they haven't, they should be free to try. So I'm in favor of energy freedom, but unfortunately the Green New Deal is, it's basically outlawing fossil fuels and then mandating solar and wind. You look at Martin Luther King, just as one example, Martin Luther King leveraged the spectacle of violence to get America to pay attention. The only difference is Martin King said, we're gonna strategize so that we get beat. Right. We're not going to tear other people up, but we're getting beat. Right. I mean, the Pettus Bridge was was the idea, the idea of being on the Pettus Bridge was, you know, that if we if we protest here, that they will that that these police will come and harm us. Yeah. And that America really will see how strategy brutal. because it showed America that the problem was the police. Do you think the spectacle right, but, right but, now is showing America that the problem is the police? Yes! The problem is, no, <laughs> the, the, it's the, not. The, when you look at these riots, it is not. You, this is the exact opposite of Martin Luther King's strategy. The exact opposite. Martin Luther King said, we're going to go in and be peaceful and we're going to watch them send dogs on us. They're going to set their fire hose on us. And when the whole world sees these clips, they're going to realize that the problem is are white people that are racist and the and the governments that are, spawn are allowing this terror to go on. OK, win. He crushed that. It was a brilliant strategy. Right now, black America's strategy is we're going to go in and be violent. We're going to go in and loot. We're going to go in no, and take no, the TVs. No, no, no. And then America's going to think, Mm, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist unit, and that's exactly what that's the concept what is. Thing. It is, but, it is. But I guess what I'm, what I'm pushing back, first what I'm pushing back against is- We society. don't look good. This is not making black people look good. 
the, the first thing I push back against is this idea that the only time we can engage in the type of resistance is if we're if our bodies are the ransom for justice. I'm right? just telling you to stop Martin Luther King's strategy. No, no, I, I'm with you. I, I am agreeing that it's not. I'm, I'm saying it's not the exact. It's not the same tactic. The overall strategy is still to use violence and the spectacle and of violence to get justice. Right. But and you're, and you're like, it's, and what I'm hearing you say is that's cool if the dogs are biting us and the hoses are spraying us. I'm saying you're not. The message you're going to deliver is that black people are violent. So you, using the idea, and you and you have just already said that you thought Martin Luther King had a good strategy, and I agree with you. Yeah. What we are doing is the exact opposite of that strategy. So we are showing that black people are violent, that black people loot, that black people rob, that black people kill one another. That is that is what is being shown. How you think we're winning with that narrative? I don't know. I don't. I don't know well, who the, right now is thinking. I'm so glad we we uh, took those TVs out of Target and burned down Target because now people that's are a, that's seeing. That's such a small part of what happened. The other thing is even what when was we, the spectacle that was shown? No, no. I, I'll tell you. But when we when we talk about King, right? Because we, we there's King in in in, in marching in '65, but there's also What's happening in Watson 65? What's happening in Detroit in 67? You know, there, there are the same rebellions you're talking about are happening around. And King. what happened? What was, no, what was no, the conclusion no, no, of that? Just, just, hear, hear, hear my thought out, though. My point is that it's never a single strategy, mm-hmm. right? There, there's always multiple things happening, right? There are people calling for defunding right now, and there are people on the streets, just like King. There are people who there are people who are marching and getting beaten by police, and there are people who who, who are tearing up Detroit and, and Watts. Mm-hmm. I'm saying we need multiple strategies. Now, I agree with you. I would love, I would love. If, and, and I got to say, I have a bookstore in Philadelphia, and a whole bunch of stores on my block got got smashed. Sneaker store got raided. Uh, uh, what else got raided? An, an, another uh, a hair store got raided. Um, my bookstore did not, right? My coffee shop did not. Now, why? Well, it's not nearly as random as you might think, right? Much of the, the people, a lot of the stuff is, oh, you're tearing down your own shit. Most of this shit in our neighborhood isn't ours. Right. Most of it are people who are occupying our neighborhoods. Most of the stuff we're taking, most of these homes that are burning, we don't own. So, so, so Target, where they hire majority black people. So you've taken black people's jobs in, in that situation. I mean, I just I'm trying to see one positive thing in burning down and looting and robbing. And I want to go back because you brought up the, you know, the the mid 60s protests yeah. um, and, the, and the riots rather because they weren't protests. They're the notorious Detroit and Chicago uh, riots were that took place. They were rebellions, riots, same thing. Which are forms of protest. OK, sure. What was the end consequence of that? Uh, the Voting Rights Act of sixty uh, of the no nope, that, that, that happened before that sixty four the, the the riots happened in sixty seven and sixty eight the oh you talking 19- about those right uh, yeah you talking about different but okay so King dies in sixty eight and we get more civil rights legislation months later no and, and this is in the aftermath of of rebellion but what 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 was the and this is the thing is people you you're looking for a piece of legislation but what happened. Detroit and Chicago were the the economic booms for the black community. The riots happened. The rich people got up and they left, and they depressed those cities oh, for decades I didn't know to come. Were, okay. Okay. So the thing is, is that this is the problem. Everybody wants to be in the now. I'm in the later. Okay. I'm already hearing the conversations amongst business owners. They're leaving. They're going to leave the cities. So you want to talk about signing up for another 60 years of black poverty? It's exactly what we did. We signed up for black poverty, and it started in the 1960s. First and foremost, it was the legislation that was supposed to be helpful. Nope, that led to economic depression too, because it incentivized bad behavior. All of the the, the Great Society Act and all that stuff that happened in the mid '60s was not good for Black America. Sounded good, like everything of Democrats before. Sounded great. We're going to give you stuff, but really, it incentivized father absence. It welfareized the Black community, and it made us it married us to the government. On top of that, we burned and looted our own communities, thinking that we were going to get justice. And 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 in what really happened is the business leaders left, the jobs left. Black people had no jobs, and we were poor. And we had we have now had 60 years complaining about the condition of Chicago and Detroit and these inner cities, and we're recreating the wheel all over again. Right now, I think it, that, that's a heck of an analysis. It's the truth. No, no, I think it's 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 not. Um, I, I, it I think, is. It's, that's what happened in the sixties. But by and large, the police. We are blaming the messenger. The real problem 
is black crime. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but that is the real problem. Well, you're telling the truth, and that makes you a racist, an and avowed racist. <laughs> why doesn't it matter that since uh, George Floyd, three dozen children have been killed, about 98% of them black. We've lost a one-year-old in New York. We've lost a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-year-old in Chicago. We've lost a four-year-old in Kansas City, an eight-year-old in Birmingham. When we say the cops have to back off and, and we allow this type of ruthless, uncontrolled behavior, it is black kids who suffer. Candace, the racism of this country, you know, I'm so sick of the liberal press. If three dozen white children had been killed, there would be a revolution. Mm -hmm. The press doesn't give a damn about black lives. It doesn't give a damn. It doesn't give a damn about black children. It only gives a damn if a black person is shot by a cop. Right, right. And that is a fraction of all the blacks who've been killed. Last year, according to the Washington Post, there were nine unarmed blacks who were shot. And by the way, you can be unarmed and still be very violent. You can be grabbing the officer's gun. Mm -hmm. You can be you can be beating him with his own equipment, and the post is going to classify you as unarmed. Mm -hmm. Those nine represent 0.1% of all blacks who were killed last year. There were probably, we're going to probably see about 7,300 blacks. 0.1%. The cops are not the problem. The problem is crime. And, and the media only cares if it's white kids that are being killed. Look at that. They all freak out at Newton, Connecticut. Yes, terrible. There is a Newton, Connecticut, periodically, cumulatively, several times a year in the black community, and the press turns its eyes away because it is not willing to talk about black-on-black -black crime. Um, so the people that you're spending time with in prison, are they from all over? Or are some of these people <clears throat> in prison for life? What, I mean, So most of them have been in prison for a long time and are nearing release. No one that we work with is going to be remaining in prison for life unless they commit another crime. So right. they're kind of on their way out, and we're trying to give them a better pathway forward. So we're helping them develop business plans, but we're also kind of just surrounding them. We provide transition homes so they can go and stay mm -hmm. there instead of going back directly into that community they came from, give them some time to readjust. Um, we provide them links to jobs, try to help them out so that they can get work and kind of get on their feet. So I think you, you made a good point is that when they come out, very often, you know, you you can't rent an apartment because you have, Felony. you know, you're blocked from doing that. Sometimes, I mean, and a lot of times they will not even let you rent an Airbnb because of that. Wow. Can't get a job. I mean, you try to work for Uber. You might not get it. Like, there's just really no uh, ways for you to move forward very often. So what we try to do is give them a way to create their own opportunity because entrepreneurship, in my opinion, is the best way to kind of get out of that, um, you know, the, the, the lower socioeconomic status that they're stuck in. And we see remarkable results because of this, because you cannot just take somebody and push them outside of prison and with 50 bucks and a bus ticket and tell them to go restart your life. You need to surround them. And if you're going to take them out of society and remove them from everything they know, you know, I know a lot of people don't like to say that government needs to provide that kind of safety net in the end, but if we don't, we're not going to have any opportunity to actually reform these people. And luckily, the organization I work with is a, is a uh, nonprofit, so they don't deal with any government funding. But I think the larger issue is that our prisons need to figure out a way to soften the blow of letting these guys back into the real world because it's too much of an adjustment. 
And I feel like I'm blessed because Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff took off just at the end of me uh, in high school. And, and so I got to actually grow up and be a kid first, you know, so it yeah. was, I got to grow up, be outside, be a kid, not be worried about what I look like, be gross, have braces, um, and not worried. Do I look like this person that's on Instagram? Yeah. Not to mention, you know, you weren't in middle school regurgitating all of your vomiting, all of your thoughts onto the internet to permanently live there forever. I can only imagine if, you know, if the 12 year old me had my ideas out there permanently, that you could so go canceled, find, right? I, I'm, I'm canceled already all the time. So for that would just make it worse. But uh, yeah, and I do, and I, I do emphasize, em, empathize with the uh, dilemma of parents. It's a little easier for me right now. I, I acknowledge because my kids are younger. But um, the when you when you let them get plugged into the internet, it just makes it worse because the problem is, you send kids to public school, they're they're immersed in in this peer culture every single day for eight hours a day, five days a week, nine months a year for the for twelve, thirteen years, um, and then they come home. And it used to be they came home and, okay, now they're home. And, and now at least you could try to recenter them again and get them focused on things that matter. But now they come home and they're still in that peer environment, that peer culture. They can never escape it because they carry it around in their pocket all the time. And so that becomes the only thing they care about. And so when you see the suicide rate among kids, um, which is just, it's unheard of to have all these suicide kids mm -hmm. killing themselves is, is crazy. I mean, it's, it's unheard of. It's, it's, this didn't used to happen. It really didn't. Um, why is that? It's not that sometimes conservatives will say, oh, kids these days are a bunch of pansies. That's not it at all. Okay. Every kid is emotionally vulnerable. I and mean, we all were. The difference is that what they care about because they're in this culture all the time, what they get their identity from the, their affirmation from their peers, um, and they can never escape it. So if they don't get that affirmation, then they feel like there's no, there's no point in living. This is my whole life. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that taking the smartphone away will prevent all of that, but I think it could go a long way. So you can do things that are metaphorical adherence to the script, but yet not change the script and just modernize its interpretation. It says, for example, you may marry more than one wife. I've never seen, I've never known a Muslim personally married to more than one wife. Mm -hmm. So what do they do with that passage? You just say, hey, you know what? I ignore it. I'm not going to rip it out, but I'm going to say it just doesn't apply today and we don't apply it because he can't, it shouldn't be applied. But that's interesting to me because, I mean, I'm, I'm, if you're going to modernize it, if you're going to say we're not going to apply that and we don't believe in this or, or we're taking apart this or that, wouldn't you think that that would then result into just a conversion away from Muslim altogether because you don't agree with the core tenets of what, you know, the original script said? And, I, and you did note that it's a minority. What you're doing is a minority movement, right? And so it is, it, it is reformed. Like if reformed is the right word, right? It's a, it's a total, right. total reformation, right? Um, but I just don't see – I don't know that you would if, – if it's realistic to expect that the hundreds of millions of people that are holding the text that says, you know, anti-Jewish rhetoric um, or is taking it literal and says take a bunch of wives, are they going to get behind this? Is, is that a realistic approach? Well, I think if you had in 2010 said that there were going to be 20 million people in the streets of Cairo fighting their government – you would have said, no way, that's impossible. They're not going to fight against a military regime, same in Syria or Iran or elsewhere. But they're doing, they're waking up. So uh, if you look at, there's some recent studies that show that it takes 10% of the population to have a significant movement to begin to change the other 90%. Mm. So I think if you look in Tunisia, for example, it really took 10% of the population to begin to finally put the governments on its heels and make the economy come to a standstill. 
the Tea Party movement and the conservative movement back in 2010, it really was 10% of the conservatives that went to the streets and then later it became more that said, we're going to take back. And now with the Trump movement against the establishment, mm. how many activists did it take? Most studies have shown it takes five to 10% is sort of the tipping point. And I think with reform, if we start, if you look at, yes, the, the cares of the world, Council on American Islamic Relations, the Islamic side of North America, the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups on the Sunni side and the Khomeinist legacy groups on the Shia side, Still, to this day, they might be able to fill a hall with 50, 60,000 people, but they still basically have 50 to 100 leaders that you might be able to see on TV from day to day. If we get that same platforming as the opportunity you're giving me here today with many of the people in our Muslim reform movement, which is part of what we're trying to do in this Assembly of Future Muslim Leaders of America, once we start getting this, I think you'll see that the silent majority will eventually wake up. My parents, we, we didn't grow up in an expat community. We grew up in, in northern New Jersey, right outside of New York City. And my, my parents actually made an effort for us to assimilate mm -hmm. and to, um, you know, speak English very well. And to they didn't see a conflict between, you know, keeping our Iranian roots, but also um, being fully, fully American. Right. Um, what, is when, this, what is the sentiment, though? What I'm trying to get at is what is the sentiment amongst Iranian Americans? It's something that I'm interested in, people that mm -hmm. fled this country for an opportunity. I mean, and we can say the same thing about this in terms of people that have fled from Cuba. I mean, there's sure. so many different countries that people flee from. Um, then you get to America and you you see people that are saying America is a horrible place to live. America is a dictatorship. People that routinely can say horrible things about the president who can threaten the president's lives and, you know, uh, uh, the president's life, whether it's in jest or in sincerity, um, and, and saying that they hope terrible things happen to the president. And they're allowed to do that here because we have freedom of speech, right? right? right. Um, and hearing them say that they're oppressed, Right, that they that they feel like they're living in a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. What is the sentiment amongst the community people that have actually lived under systems of oppression? Right, I think there's there's two. I mean, this is a gross generalization, but if I were to kind of break it down for you, I think the majority of Iranian Americans, particularly those who either fled before the the revolution, during the revolution, or just after the revolution, they remember it very, very, very well, and they. They, they don't take anything for granted. Their children are all very, very highly educated. Uh, they, they push their children to assimilate. They love this country and they want better for Iran. And those are usually the Iranians that push for regime change. They're very happy regardless of the um, political party for any politician, any president to push for regime change or to push for you know a better Iran. So they don't see, when, for example, when Donald Trump pulls out of the Iran nuclear deal in May of 2018, most of those Iranians that I'm referring to were very happy because they understand that it's a punishment for the regime and not the people, even though the people will be sanctioned. The, the bottom line is that, yes, the sanctions are affecting the people, but only because the regime is allowing the people mm. to face the burden of the sanctions. Well, and then also, even if you if you do the, if you run the opposite argument, I mean, when Obama sent a, a billion dollars in cash to the Absolutely. Iranian people, the Iranian people didn't see that money. And they know that. Right. And that's, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the difference that's most important. So when I was growing up in Zimbabwe, there was no racial tension like, you know, animosity. It was all about reconciliation and everybody moving forward away from the past of colonization. Mm -hmm. So that's how he started out. But as time went by, the corruption that he had uh, that he had instituted within the country, the min his ministers were stealing millions of dollars from the people and uh, his war veterans, they blew all the pension funds. So now what was taking place was the economy was starting to fail. And his way of uh, 
taking attention off himself was to start this Marxist rhetoric against the white farmers. Mm. So he started telling everybody that your problem is not me and my corrupt ministers. Your problem are the white farmers. They're the ones that have taken your land and this is your land. So you are the, that's who you should be looking at and not me. Oh, so this so, is so playbook socialist. Exactly. Actually, the government is corrupt. The government is taking your money. But let me go ahead and start issues between the proletariat um, exactly. and the wealthy people. And that's what I start to see in the United States. And that's why it's so familiar to me. I'm just like, wow, OK, this is starting to play out again. Yeah, actually, right when you were just saying that in the beginning, it was, oh, we need reconciliation. We need to move forward. I instantly thought of Obama. Right. Because that was sort of like that was the guy. I That's remember how crying the night that he won, being like, finally, we're all going to come together. We're going to move forward. Exactly. And not exactly what we got. Absolutely not. The same way his rhetoric started changing, Obama's rhetoric started changing and becoming more about black versus white. It's a natural way in which humanity trends when there isn't a sense of morality. Exactly. And morality, correct. as soon as morality is developed and understood, you you immediately move towards tribalism. Yeah. Um, and and so that that is that is the great miracle. That is exactly. the Greek miracle, right? That, that yeah. was a part of the Greek miracle, Judeo-Christian values. Um, and and that's the thing that we have to be so grateful for. So we know mm. all of that. Right. And yet, when I'm walking down the street in Washington D.C., here yep. I look up, and it's mm-hmm. it's. Let's go the opposite direction. It's my life's passion to speak to pastors to to reverse this. I, I go across the nation doing this. And what is it that I'm doing? I'm asking them to get back to really believe what their Bible says and let it rip. When I say let it rip, I mean go into that pulpit on fire, having prayed and studied. Um, don't get your sermon from some guy online. Uh, don't say, Lord, bless my scrambled eggs and the message today. I'm talking about get your heart on fire, know what you believe, and and preach it and teach it because it's true. We're flawed people. We're broken people. We need God's grace, his forgiveness. We need the love of Jesus. We need the cross and that empty tomb. Once that's settled, truth never changes. Truth is truth. And it's not that. I, I, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, he, he kind of lovingly rebuked somebody who said, we need God on our side. And Reagan turned and said, we, don't, we need to get on God's side. That's the side that we need to be on. And so I just believe, Candace, that it's not too late that if pastors in a community starting this Sunday began to preach and teach from the Bible— which I believe is always relevant. They're going to address issues, even though if it's about the cross or it's about Martha pouring the ointment on Jesus' feet, you can work that in to the fact that this is what's going on in our local schools and this is how that applies today. If we say that, and I believe the Holy Spirit is saying that, we could, we could see a change in our nation like this, and it is called revival. It happened in the first awakening mm-hmm. in America. It happened awakening. in the second awakening. Right. And look, you and I geographically are not—we're not far from the Azusa Street revival that mm-hmm. broke out uh, in California. It made history. Uh, the Jesus movement. It started the hippies. You're way too young to know this, but the hippies were stoned, free sex everywhere. Hate Ashbury was going on, uh, and they woke up to the fact that you know what? We're killing ourselves. And there were people just reading out of the Bible publicly in Huntington Beach and Costa Mesa, and kids sat down and listened to the Bible. And there was a cultural change. That was 40 years ago. We need to get back to that. 
even if black Americans are aware and know their history, right? And you can get black conservatives who understand the history much more, who understand, you know, the ills of the left and what the left has done. But still in that regard, you they bring to the conservative side the same bad habits that I was hoping black conservatives would be abandoning. And what I'm talking about, number one, is conflict resolution. Black Americans do not know how to resolve basic conflicts. Everything has to turn into a fight. I hate you forever. You got to draw lines. It's like you're this gang or that gang. And you still see it happening in politics. Mm -hmm. The hater mentality is, is big everywhere, I guess, because we come from the hater culture. Like you said, conflict resolution, right? Me personally, I had a guy that shot at me, right, five times uh, at when, uh, in broad daylight at my old school in Queens. And that same guy, he ended up getting arrested, did five years. That same guy, I seen him five years later on Jamaica Ave in Queens. And I guess he's like, he got, he, he basically like, act, it was if he saw a ghost. So I guess he thought it was over for him. I said, brother, look, you did five years, bro. Like, if you're not over it at this time, then I wouldn't know what to say. I'm over it, bro. I don't, you didn't kill me. You didn't kill nobody that I know. At the end of the day, we're both alive. The best thing we could do is just, is just leave it alone. Do you know that same person used to come to my studio that I built in my, in my, in my, in my community for people to come in and, you know, have free studio time. I taught them engineering, how to be able to record themselves so they wouldn't need anybody. And he's like my brother now. Like literally, it's like my brother. Like if I call him and I say I have some drama, He's going to come and handle anybody. But my, even though I never try to entertain that, but the whole point is we can solve issues. The mafia, they could the guy could have killed his brother two weeks ago. But because of the bigger picture, they will come together at a table and actually have a conversation to make sure nobody else dies. And I think a lot of times we, we get so caught up with our emotions that we don't look at the bigger picture. Right. At the end of the day, if I go and hurt him, there's somebody that loves him too. Now they're going to come hurt somebody out, and the cycle's just going to keep going, going. Who, who's going to end that cycle? We have to have one person in their mind that say, you know what? I ain't going to continue the cycle. And because there is this ignorance, I think Scott Adams actually caused this, like, the non-expert problem. Mm -hmm. When you're not an expert, so you don't have the information to be to be able to accurately assess what's right. happening. And this is exactly what they're doing with Jeffrey Epstein. We are like, well, something's happening. He's been arrested. But you're saying that you look to this. You're a lawyer. You read these documents, and you're going— Actually, we're just going to say, uh, you know, you can't, there's a girl you gave a massage, she's 15 years old and you got a massage and that's poo-poo on you. Right. I mean, that is ridiculous. Right. And they know the media is going to cover it up too. Mm. So nobody in the media was putting the heat on. Like, this is nothing. Mm. Literally, you read this and you're like, this is maybe five years prison. Right. Maybe five years. And that's the, that's why the idea that Jeffrey Epstein, who anybody who's met him has told you he's not really human in the sense of he's just a cold-blooded sociopath right so you and i like right now if somebody kicked in the door and pointed a gun at us we'd be like oh we'd be a little startled a true sociopath with epstein doesn't have a fear response so that's why when i said right. in every image he sort of looked mm -hmm. like he was confident and mm -hmm. calm and it i was like what is this right it's physiological he the, a sociopath of that nature doesn't have the fear response that other people have right. they're literally wired differently so the idea that Jeffrey Epstein is sitting in a cell, oh, I'm so afraid, what's going to happen? The dude's got, he's sitting in a cell thinking, I have $500 million, which by the way, we don't know where that came from. Uh, I have $500 million. 
compromising material on everybody, including Bill Clinton mm. and gosh knows who else. Oh, yeah, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. Wait, you know what? Go back to what you just said because that's actually very interesting. Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein had $500 million and we don't know what his source of income was. No, we don't know who his private broker was. We don't know who any of his people who did the trades were. We don't know who worked for him in his hedge fund. It was very much like uh, Bernie Madoff. So Bernie Madoff mm -hmm. for years was this great trader. And anybody who look into it would go, well, I mean, here's – it goes back to, again, if I came in here and I said, I don't use a microphone for a podcast, you would just say like, okay, you're not. You're, there's something wrong with you, right? Right. So – if you're if you're managing five hundred million dollars, you're going to have a research analyst. Mm -hmm. You're going to have multiple analysts, and they're going to like do in investment advice. But you're going to have a whole floor of traders. You're going to have what's called a prime broker who gets you your money, and you're going to have a market maker who sends up the trades, and you're going to have just a Bloomberg terminal. You're going to have all these things. Manoff didn't have any of that. People are like, well, that's the same thing with Epstein. He didn't have any of those things that you would have because it isn't like 500 million dollars you just pick up the phone right. to e-trade hey bro i want to you know move 100 million dollars in apple stock it just doesn't work that way so where do you get his money uh, we don't know we still don't know where did he pay his taxes where of his tax returns i'm mean, just you name it right it's right. unusual i was on sherlock holmes book kick i read all this stuff years ago and one of the archetypes that or metaphors that evolve is called like the dog that didn't bark and i don't feel bad spoiling the book for people it's over 150 years old but there's a mystery and you're always like well how do we know who did it and then at the very end you know you get these revelations well the one story they're like well how do we know who broke in and they said well the dog didn't bark the only reason the dog wouldn't have barked is because it was the owner who he did knew. it yeah right and so what i'm always looking for and these kind of cases and detective work, it's not what they show me. I'm like, what dog isn't barking? Right. So the police had told me, because again, we work under their jurisdiction, if you can't find Guardy and they offer to sell you a child, buy the child, go through with the deal, let them conclude this deal, which will give us the evidence we need to then take this place down. And then we'll really be able to find Guardy. So at this point, I have to pick a child to buy in, in a sting operation. And I'm, I'm looking around and, uh, I actually have the undercover footage. You can see this because I had another guy with me. There's two of us that walked in. And so he caught me as I'm looking for this kid. Who am I going to buy? And this beautiful little boy, he's about um, probably two years old. He, he basically picks me. And he walks up to me. And I just hold this little boy in my arms. And I said, okay, he's, he's the one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy. I take him in my arms and I walk into some of the outbuildings while my colleague is keeping the traffickers occupied, negotiating a price and so forth. And so I'm looking in. I got my camera to pick up any other faces, any other children. And as I'm walking into this dark outbuilding on, the, on this premises, this dirty, smelly, evil place, uh, I hear the footsteps of another child who's following me. And I swing around and there's this three-year-old girl. And... Uh, she, I'll tell you in a minute why I'm getting so emotional. There's a reason. <laughs> um, and she, she's looking at me and she's looking at him and I don't, I want to kind of get her out of the way. I don't want to create, you know, a, a lot of attention around what I'm doing. So I give her a candy, candy bar. Now these kids are all, we find out later and I could tell in the moment, all of them are on the verge of starvation. And I give this little girl a candy bar. She's probably never seen a candy bar. 
And I said, take this outside. You can eat it outside. And I have children. I know that's they respond to that. <laughs> this little girl did something I'd never seen any child do. She took the candy bar. She broke it in half, almost like muscle memory, not even thinking, with, without taking her eyes off the little boy in my arms. Breaks that candy bar in half and hands the other half to the little boy. And I just knew. I mean, God told me in that moment. They're related. They're, they're brother and sister. Wow. All they have is each other. That's it. And I'm, and what have I done? How many Americans have come down to this place, picked up a child, and that child disappears forever, and this little girl's not going to let that happen? And so I broke the cardinal rule of undercover operators in that moment, this first and last time I ever did it. I, I knelt down. I put the little boy down. Right when I put him down, she grabs him and <laughs> protects him from me, which was the sweetest thing. This little girl is just my hero. And then I broke this rule by telling them who I was, um, that I am here to help them, and then they need to help me and just go along with what I'm doing, and we will get you guys out of here. And she knew this girl's brilliant. She's, she's gifted in, in a way that most children aren't. And so she does, and she goes along with this. We end up getting the kids out. We buy those kids in a sting operation, in a sting deal. We had to go to another hotel that we had set up where we had cameras wired to make sure we got all the dialogue and all the evidence we needed. Um, it went off perfectly. Uh, the traffickers got arrested. They liberated the, or the orphanage, the false orphanage. And little Guardi, of course, wasn't there. And, but the father, I told you about the father, the father of this little boy who I, who I met, who I made the promise to, that we would never, he's, he's a pastor of his congregation, of his Christian church. I promised him that we would never stop till we found his son. He's waiting in another hotel for the good news. He's waiting for me to walk through the door with his son in my arms. And we all knew that was going to happen. We believed it. And I still had hope at this moment when the police raided the, the, the front orphanage that Guardy would be there. And about 30 minutes later, they called me with the devastating news that he's not here. And I had to go back and tell this man what happened. And it was the most difficult and most inspiring conversation I've ever had with a human being. I went back, sat down with him. He was in the lobby of the hotel, and without saying a word, he just breaks down. I break down. We're just sobbing <laughs> without even uh, exchanging any words because he knew that I didn't have his son. Yeah. But I did eke out the words to him, that, but we did, we did get 28 kids out. Yeah. And then he did this most amazing thing. He slaps his hand on the table, and he pops his head up, and his tears are drying. I'm still crying. He's not. And he says, stop crying. This is amazing. I said, what's amazing? He said, you just told me we rescued 28 kids. I said, yeah, but I'm worried about the one we didn't get. And he says, no, you're missing it. If Gardy hadn't been kidnapped, none of those kids would have had a chance. His kidnapping led to this. And I thought, wow, you know, I, <laughs> I couldn't say what you're saying were roles reversed. And then he said this, the most profound thing anyone's ever said to me. He said, if I have to give up my son so that those 28 kids could be rescued, then that is a burden I'm willing to bear. Is there, they're really fearful about the direction that the school systems have taken. And we yeah. saw this obviously happening. You and I have done a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of public speaking about this. Um, what would be your advice to them as a mother now? You know, you're, you're much more tethered into the discussion about what they should be doing with their children, even not even just in grade school, because that's how young the indoctrination yeah. can start, but even through to college, what would be your perspective on that? 
Well, what I think parents need to realize, and I know I'm a new mom, so I'm not trying to say, oh, I have all the wisdom for, you know, the moms with five kids, with teenagers and things like that. I understand I have very limited experience. Thankfully, I have sisters-in-law. I have uh, a lot of women in my life who have a lot of children, have a lot of experience that I've been able to to learn from. And just from um, being engaged in the culture like you are, have been able to see some of the trends that you're talking about. I was interviewing someone the other day who um, said something very poignant and true that the, the the battleground of ideas doesn't start in middle school or high school or college like we used to think it does. It starts on the playground. Mm-hmm. It starts when they're three years old. It starts at preschool. It starts uh, in the nursery rhymes that they are listening to and the things that they're watching on Netflix. There's an ideology that is being pushed behind so much of the content and the conversations um, that are surrounding our young children. So my encouragement to moms, especially Christian moms, that's just the perspective that I have, is start preparing your kids, your babies, your toddlers right now. Read them the things that you want to read them. Start teaching them about the Bible, about God's word, about who created them, who created the heavens and the earth. Start laying that foundation right now and I can talk about it at a different time or provide in a different way, different resources that I think moms can be using. But just make sure that right now, especially when your kids are at home before they are gone for eight hours a day at a school, to make sure that you lay the groundwork for the Christian values or whatever your values are for your children. Start shaping their minds right now so that they're equipped. My other piece of advice that I would have, again, as an inexperienced mom, but as a mom who sees what's happening in government schools, get your kids out of government schools. Mm -hmm. There is um, a, a wonderful pastor by the name of Vodi Bakum, and he has talked about just the indoctrination that happens in public schools. And he says, uh, you know, you can't send your kids to Caesar and be surprised when they come back Romans. And it's true. When you send your kids to government schools with a government ideology, which happens to be a left-wing ideology so much of the time, they are going to, they are going to be affected by that and possibly infected by that. And so the question for the parent is, do you want to battle with that? Like, do you want to battle with the ideology that your child is learning for eight hours a day when you spend two hours at home with them at night? Probably not. And and looking at this coronavirus situation, I was shocked to see people that I deeply respect on the right falling for this. They were, I mean, they were so scared. And what the left did is they finally found something that even conservatives who understand why we need to have our freedoms um, are afraid of, and that that's death. You know, the left needs today the politics of fear. This is kind of why they try to whip us into a frenzy all the time. See, Marx thought you wouldn't need any of this. Marx thought that the revolution was scientific. It would come automatically. You don't even have to fight for it because it's going to happen by a law of history. But nowhere did the workers revolt against the capitalist class, not in Marx's time, not to this day, anywhere in the world. So the left has realized Marx was wrong about that. There's nothing scientific about socialism. What we need is panic. So, you know, FDR discovered in the Depression, I can do all kinds of stuff that I could never have done if we weren't in this Great Depression. And then since the 70s, the left is like, we're running out of food. In the 80s, nuclear apocalypse. In the 90s, the ozone layer is going away. The last 20 years, climate change, the oceans are rising. And now coronavirus, the, the, the theme is the same. We want to take rational people and create a crowd stampede. Mm-hmm. So because crowds behave differently than rational individuals in the crowd. If you can get people to think that their lives are in danger and they have to run, then they behave in ways, they do things, they submit to irrationality, and the left thrives. Not only was I faced with like personal harassment from wanting to study Western civilization, 
institutionally, we were set up to fail from the get-go. So like I said earlier, it's like a rubber stamp approval to get um, to get club approval on campus. They were like, well, because so many people are against this. So many people, I mean, like 50, 50 people are against this. Um, we are going to hold town halls on this issue. So our SGA approval was delayed a month. We then had to go to two town halls. There were probably like 200 people in each town hall. And we just had to listen to people's questions and comments on why they didn't think the club should exist. Give me some sample questions. So, yeah. So, so and one, comments. Some comments. So um, the best would be, and I think at the age one, is that I feel unsafe having this club on campus. Um, that it's, it's an atrocity and I don't feel like I belong at Trinity with a Churchill Club on campus. Um, we were accused of having um, Koch Brother money. We, my, that's my favorite accusation that I, I get. Yeah, do you get that all oh, the time all too? All the time. And I just want to say, I'm not against taking their money, but I don't, ha I ha I don't I have haven't it. taken it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I'm just saying, like I'll take the Koch Brother money, but like it's a weird thing when you're conservative. You get, there's, you just get, yeah, they're like, ah, oh, the Koch Brother money. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what is that? Yeah, they're like, like I, I, it's, it's the craziest argument. And this is what mostly the faculty would make is that, we were essentially taking money from the Koch brothers and then we were using it to run this club to then rig elections, like student government elections. And I'm like, where did that idea come from? Like, we literally just want to have like two dinners a year and like read books. Like, first of all, where, where does that come from? And two, like, how is that? Like, can we talk about the issue of Western civilization? Right. Like, like let's get back on track. And like, they just wouldn't. Um, so those were like a lot of the town hall questions. Um, most people made the same question over and over again. Um, so everyone would come up and be like, Western civilization um, is white supremacy. They said that in our mission statement, we said expansion. Um, they took that as like legit, like domestic terrorist expansion, like, mm -hmm. like, like KKK stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like we're reading books. Like we put expansion in there because I think we were, we wanted to expand like our knowledge and expand our our horizons with it. But it's um, a dog whistle expansion. Right. The word expansion is a dog whistle for wanting to expand your club uh, into a cell for the Ku Klux Klan. Right. I mean, it just it, it just gets out of you can't even make it up. Like, um, so then it got. So then what happened was after that. I mean, they were like super. I just sat there and I was just like, this can't be happening. Like, like this can't be like real. Uh, but it was. So. Me and a few other club members, we decided that let's meet with the people that are voting on this to approve us. I feel like I'm a pretty personal person. I feel like if I talk to some people, maybe I can understand what the real issue is and maybe we can talk about it and talk it out. Um, I was naive, obviously, but but I mean, so so I get in there and I thought we had a pretty productive conversation and, and I kind of was talking about the things with you, which is that I recognize the hypocrisy in some ways that Western civilization has had, but every day Western Civ strives to to correct those mistakes and to move forward. And I think that, you know, the freedoms that we have right now are given to us by that. Our ability to sit in this room and have this conversation and debate Western civilization can only happen because of Western civilization. And just no one really got it. So um, we even, you know, talked about changing some of some of our mission statement or just changing the wording just to kind of get it over with. And they wouldn't even budge on that. So we kind of realized that like they don't care. This isn't about us actually like this isn't about us reading books. This isn't about us doing anything. It's that professors, administrations, and this happens all over the country, have conditioned students to believe that Western civilization is bad for no apparent reason 
just in a way to just gain power over the narrative that they want. Um, I got cured from my epilepsy. And actually, that's the reason now the joy of this thing is that I am... I have this new life that I wasn't going to have. Mm. I'm on extra time already because this time wasn't supposed to be mine. And it means I can live utterly. I don't have things. I don't have a home. I can't have savings. They'll come for that. I don't have things. And also I don't have fear. And because of that, I'm probably one of the most free people on the planet, potentially, because the two things that limit people are the wish to preserve the things they have, so mm. a home or a job or a family or a wife or a husband, and the wish to preserve life. And I haven't got financial stuff anymore because I can't have it in the UK, and my life is already an additional extra. Mm. So, so I get supercharged, and so that's why... All of this is fun, and I think it's part of the reason I can find the funny a lot. Right. Because it's very freeing. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I feel in many ways the same way, um, and I, I think humor is so important. And a lot of times you find in political space, people take themselves way too so, seriously. So seriously. Yeah, and I, I've had people that, like, hate. I'll make fun of someone, genuinely making fun of them because yeah. it's funny, and people get super upset about it and just, like, how, how could you make I'm like, how can you go through life taking yourself so incredibly seriously when life, you know, life hands everybody – just you know, a bad, uh, a, a bad deck of cards, and you have to be able to laugh yourself through it, You've especially in politics. You've got to, especially in politics. And we need to laugh more. Yeah. And that's kind of my ambition from here. Uh, I broke in here via Barbados by going through quarantine because I'm not allowed to be here. So we're harboring a criminal. Just You're harboring, clear, a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. harboring yeah. a criminal. Yeah, okay. an Ebola-ridden British woman. <laughs> Uh, who's obviously a Nazi and a, a fascist and a sexist and many of those things. But I won't leave and I intend to cause as much uh, problem to the left as I can while I'm here. Um, and I intend to do it as well with a sense of fun because there is much to laugh at and with. We need to laugh at ourselves much more. We need to laugh at the things that threaten us like Black Lives Matter. You know, water is wet. Just okay. shout back at them. <laughs> Lie on the floor. Prostrate yourself more than they can kneel. And I think by humor, we we win. You know, humor is one of the most powerful tools that we have. They are able to not only make you miserable, but get you to fight for your misery. That's right. They got black Americans to fight for their misery. And they women, get women to Hispanics. fight for their misery. Uh, and Jewish yes. people to fi fight for yes. it, you know, and, and they're able to do that. They got, they got Jews to hate Israel. They did. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. I speak to yes. them like, wow. I mean, and, 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 right. and I'm sitting here arguing with them, trying to say, and I just ask questions. You know, I'm not here to pretend to be an expert, but I, I know what you know. The, the, the world was always ugly. So why, why does it only matter? And it's only only relevant when you go back in history it's like but jewish people but jewish people i'm like do you know what this world was we are none of us are without sin actually to 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 think that is a godless position it's a godless position to believe well it is godless and and uh, uh this was the this was one of the great important moments of my life when i was at graduate school i was walking around columbia midtown manhattan or in upper manhattan and I was going crazy because my teachers were teaching me drivel, nonsense, true nonsense. And I kept thinking, why are such bright people teaching me nonsense? And all of a sudden, I had gone to yeshiva, which is Jewish school uh, all day long, uh, half the day in Hebrew, religious subjects half the day in English, secular subjects, a very strong grounding. 
So we would open up in, in first grade with some prayers. Usually they were verses from the Bible in Hebrew. I hadn't said this verse since second grade, and it came to me in graduate school out of nowhere. That's why I called it an epiphany. And that answered my question and changed my life. All of a sudden, the verse came back to me in Hebrew. I won't bother saying it in Hebrew. Wisdom begins with the fear of God from the Bible. And I had, oh, now I know why there's no wisdom at Columbia. There's no God at Columbia. And that has stayed with me to this day. The secular world has no wisdom. They have knowledge. There are very kind people there. There's no question there are secular kind people. Absolutely. But there's no wisdom coming from the secular world. That doesn't mean all religious people are wise. There are religious fools. But all wisdom comes ultimately in the Western world from the Bible-based world that we had. That is, that Lincoln didn't go to church, but he read the Bible every night. And he was a very wise man. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.